Anyway, um, I, in, in putting this talk together, I, I, got, I got to thinking about a bunch of things, uh, a lot of having to do with how we got where we are today and, and, and where we're going. So I, I, I kind of, even though the talk is titled uh, the, the 25th anniversary of the DCS, I put, thought I'd put a little bit of a perspective on this, uh, per se. I, I'm in the process of, of trying to uh, kind of put together, I, I'm thinking of a, a, a book uh, at some point on, on the topic, but uh, if nothing worse comes to worse, we at least have a, a talk on it. So uh, that's kind of where we're going to go. Um, so I thought, first of all, I'd give you a real quick rundown of, as to where this uh, thing called photography came from, and then, uh, and then we'll proceed uh, onto the DCS stuff. So for those of you who don't know, uh, the, the camera obscura is really where this originated. It's, it's a, a drawing device. We have one on the second floor of the house now, which works pretty well. It's basically a, a little principle of light that uh, when light rays go through a small opening, it actually will project an image on the opposite uh, wall, so to speak. So a little diagram of this. And upstairs, uh, this is what it looks like on a really nice sunny day. This is probably the best you're ever going to see it. This was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and yes, it is upside down. So when you go in that room, realize you are really doing the equivalent of walking inside of a camera. Eventually, this gets turned into a portable device, so artists could actually take it on location. Uh, and so we happen to have here uh, an image of the oldest object in the museum's collection, a portable reflex camera obscure from about 1820, and also a, a rendering of what it would look like in use. For those of you who like to celebrate uh, World Photography Day on August 19th, uh, that has to do with the fact that that's the day that the daguerreotype process was officially made available to the public for free. Uh, what we have here is an image of the Giroud daguerreotype image and a portrait of Daguerre. And again, this is, this is on one hand a, an amazing thing, the fact that you could actually capture and save on a plate uh, what you are looking at in this camera and carry it with you away without having to draw it, render it by hand. It was just a, a miracle of the age. Uh, from this point on, what we have is actually sort of the equivalent of, of uh, lots of people working on improvements. So we, I like to call this the, the uh, how to build a better mousetrap, so to speak. Uh, one of the Folks also working on this process uh, in England, William Henry Fox Talbot, uh, had some very small cameras. His uh, wife called them mousetraps. So we really are, from here on out, building better mousetraps. <laughs> this is not a portable process. I mean, this is the, uh, the kit of the Bemis outfit. It's uh, roughly the size of this podium. Uh, weighs about 75 pounds. So obviously, if you're going to take that out and use it, you're going to have to, uh, I don't know, be very persistent. The images. We're not really like you think of today. Uh, the early process, the images uh, did not have the highest contrast. But from here on out, whether it's the, the mousetrap, the box itself, or the process, or the lens, everything starts being improved by lots of folks. First of all, we're going to make it portable, and we're also going to switch to something that's less expensive to do. Uh, this is a, a, one of those first portable kits, the Dubroni. It's a wet plate process kit, uh, really designed to fit into something about the size of a briefcase, uh, and it's also images on glass, so it's a lot, a lot less expensive to do. And it's obviously picked up by 
professional photographers as well. This is a, a professional studio box camera possibly used to make this portrait of Lincoln. What do you need to move all this stuff with? Well, a pack mule comes in handy. And you can see a, a full video camera on the uh, 1880, we have really the first next big revolution. George Eastman uh, patents a machine that will automatically coat gelatin dry plates. So he's making this a lot less complicated to do. So you'd actually buy pre-sensitized plates and then go do this. So you're sort of separating the photographers somewhat from the chemistry, but you still have to do the processing yourself. Uh, this is a convenient, if you would, camera that was designed to use gelatin dry plates. The, the box on the top actually holds 12. It will gravity drop into the camera, so you, you don't have to load them uh, one at a time anymore. The really big change is the Kodak. And what we have here is uh, the 1888 camera, and basically also new to the museum are the examples of films, thanks to uh, uh, Bob Chambrick and Steve Fassen. These are packaged versions of the original Kodak film. This is a camera that was easy to use uh, and completely separated uh, the photographer, if you would, from the process. So from this point on, basically anybody can do this. Uh, Eastman's advertising slogan, you press the button, we do the rest, uh, really hit home with this. And this really sets up the stage for what would become one of the most successful business models in the history of manufacturing and marketing products. The images, in some ways, are very similar to what you would, would make today. Uh, the difference is the cost. The camera was very expensive. It cost $25. Uh, processing and the reloading was another $10. Within 12 years, the brownie comes out, so suddenly it costs a dollar for the <coughs> camera. Uh, the roll of film cost 15 cents, and processing for six pictures was 40 cents. So the money's in the media, as, the, as, the, as I've been told numerous times <laughs> by several people sitting in the front row. <laughs> These cameras were very limited as to when they could work. And they, they were really great on a nice sunny day in, in the middle of July. Uh, so what, what has to happen and does in this case is much faster lenses. This is uh, the beginning of uh, the equivalent of existing light photography. This has a, an F2 lens. And we get into automatic exposure. This is the Super Kodak 620. So suddenly you no longer have to do all the calculations or table reading or various other things to make a, a, a picture. Uh, one problem with this camera is it was very expensive, but also not exactly the most reliable one in the sense of it. Usually considered to be a real milestone in photography. And by the way, uh, this particular product was about 20 years ahead of the rest of the world. <coughs> flash photography. And flash bulb, it's in 1929, putting it into a camera. Uh, where it's built in, not an add-on unit, happens about 1940. So kind of an interesting design, but it would do get the job done. Color film. Uh, George Eastman established the company research labs in 1912. The main reason behind this, other than to figure out what was actually going on in photography, what made these reactions happen, was to learn how to do color photography in a fairly simple way. Kodachrome film comes out. It's a process that was done actually originally outside of Kodak's labs by Madison Gadusky. And from here on out, we've pretty much had color film. Keep in mind that this is fairly slow stuff. Film speed is going to be, depending on whose scale you use, somewhere between uh, 8 to 16. Typical Kodachrome slide. 
Then we get into, you know, why do I have to wait to see my pictures? Why can't I see them right now? So we have uh, Dr. Land uh, demonstrated in a Polaroid 95 uh, just after World War II, 1948. Zoom lenses, and again, these are all things that we kind of take for granted. Most cameras these days have a built-in zoom lens. Uh, zoom R was the first one, 1959. Uh, and given its optical quality, it's lucky it was not the last <laughs> Simple snapshot photography, you know, we start with the Kodak, uh, being able to just drop a cartridge in the camera and push the button. So we have the, the Instamatic 11963. Uh, they sold over 75 million of them. This, this camera has uh, several really important places in history and, one of them actually has to do with the fact that I think it tended to skew the, uh, the minds of the people who were designing this, or thinking that every camera was going to sell this kind of numbers, and if it didn't reach these numbers, it was not <coughs> Affordable instant photography, uh, the Polaroid Swinger. This was a pack-loading camera, and again, you can look at the image right away. It had some kind of kitschy ads that went with it. I really love this woman's hairstyle. <laughs> Electronics in photography. Uh, lunar Orbiter is, is, at this point, I would say the, the most expensive camera in our collection here. When you get into what this could do, being able to photograph and map the surface of the moon remotely uh, with a success rate of something on the order of 100% is just unbelievable. Uh, Bimap film, you name it, it did it. It's really the equivalent of, of today as a, uh, we'll say, flying flying TV studio, motion, uh, uh, I should say, film processing lab, and uh, television station, if you will. It actually made the images, processed them in the, in the orbiter, scanned them, and then sent it back to NASA. Just unbelievable. So, so the image on the paper was scanned, or was it, wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like sensitive transistors? <coughs> no, this, this is an analog device. It used what was called bimap film, uh, Bimat film was a roll of film that also had a roll of processing developer that would be rolled together, uh, processed in the orbiter, the little black ball in the, in the front of the orbiter. This guy right here, we don't need a laser pointer. That's the climate control module, so they've raised the temperature up to about 120 degrees, processed the film. Uh, in the back of this gizmo was a scanner, so it actually would scan the image and then transmit it back to Pretty, pretty amazing from all sorts of you know, technology here. I also like the little, oops, McDonald's, we'll, we'll go back. I like the, the little McDonald's Big Mac sort of shipping box for it. <laughs> this is what the whole satellite looked like. This is actually a model courtesy of uh, Dr. Brad Paxton here. Um, we just had the camera payload. So, uh, this is something that had to survive you know, basically get a lot of G-Force to take off and still function. Again, when you get into uh, they used five of them, they were all successful. Just unbelievable when you really get into it. Uh, got two antennas on the side, by the way, aside from the rocket engines. Uh, one is a directional antenna, and the other one is actually sending the images back. These are what the images look like. Uh, each of these little stripes, by the way, represents orbits. It was a sort of the equivalent of a bed scanning camera. Artsy image of the Earth because you could actually direct it and point it to other places if you like. Instant photography goes color. The, the SX70 really a landmark item. 
And of course, you got to have a forward SX70 that has a latch. I mentioned earlier about the, the, the uh, Instamatic 100. Uh, the, the disc comes out in 1982. Amazing technology when you get into it. But the fact that it was a pocket-sized camera, automatic exposure, uh, had an aspheric design lens. One small problem was, was the film. It wasn't quite up to snuff for the image size at the time. Uh, a lot of the world looks at this camera as being unsuccessful. They only sold 25 million of them. <coughs> it's a, it's a, like I said, it's, a, it's all a point of view, I guess. The next thing we need is automatic, automatic uh, focus, <coughs> autofocus. This is something that I, in, in the last few years, I've come to appreciate. <laughs> uh, there was a time that I didn't understand it at all. I just focused the camera. So that's, that sort of sets the stage for kind of what's going to happen next. And here we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> 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 You'll see in the corner it says February 1973. Uh, and anyway, we can make any comments that you want. Uh, I assume you're, I don't know, scared of the desk. <laughs> uh, Boylan Smith introduced the charge coupled device in 1969. Uh, it starts being available to the market, if you would. I'm not sure exactly which market it would be, but as advice, and this is a, an actual version of it from 1974. Uh, the pins, whatever, uh, the, sensi the sensitive area is going to be right around in there, so not very big. It's 100 by 100 pixels. And the conversation was, as it's probably been relayed many, many times, was, uh, I guess you said he had a 45-second conversation with Gareth Floyd about investigating the imaging capability of the charge couple device. So Steve decides, uh, basically because he was 23 years old and didn't know any better, to try to build a handheld camera. Uh, fairly simple sounding idea, except at the time, probably not. So this is the, the prototype from uh, 1975, <coughs> basically an image that it would make, and kind of, kind of interesting. These are out of its technical report uh, from 1977. <coughs> yeah, 1977. Okay. Uh, this is an image of Kodak's typical boy-dog target photo. It's not a live picture of the dog, uh, and it's actually a photograph of, of the image from the camera on a television. The playback device is the rather large box on the, whoops. This guy right here is the playback device, which unfortunately does not exist. Um, and what we have here is, is sort of a, an attempt to make a facsimile image of what would have come out of the camera. This is actually too good. It doesn't have any of the various assorted artifacts. It is a 100 by 100 uh, pixel image of Joy Marshall's was luckily enough, luckily enough to be the first person photographed with this camera. Unfortunately, the image doesn't exist. We do have the tape, but there's no image about it, unfortunately. But again, not, not a real image, so to speak. Uh, the camera was not, I don't know, introduced to the public until after 2000. Uh, this is a, a fairly well-known image that was in the Rochester Democratic Chronicle. 2005, uh, and Steve said he they kept making it farther and farther out into the street. He was afraid of getting <laughs> 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 I almost died. <laughs> and uh, also, kind of along these lines, as he received the 
the official National Medal of, of Technology and Innovation, the, the official Nerd Award, if you would, uh, from President Obama <laughs> summer. I put this up primarily because you know, Steve's gotten a lot of the recognition, but actually there are many, many people who worked on these various projects. And trying to get your hands around uh, the, the number of divisions within the company that we're working on, uh, very similar ideas simultaneously, basically without knowing what they were, what anybody else was doing. It, it was kind of fascinating to, to try to understand. Uh, so there was professional, there was government, there was just pure research, uh, consumer. So there's lots of lots of divisions here. So if we kind of track back to more uh, arcane things, if you would. Uh, Sony introduced the Mavica. Uh, at least the idea of the Mavica in the early 80s, basically saying silver photography is dead. Uh, it wasn't, by the way. Um, one slight problem is the image quality was not so good. It's basically TV uh, resolution. Uh, the image shown here is actually significantly better looking than they usually were. Uh, Eastman Kodak Company, uh, as I've been told, uh, what Brad was Brad Paxson was told he will start working on this on a Monday after the Sunday announcement. They had their own system. Uh, the camera did not go into production, but all the other parts did. Uh, the funny little box with the statue on the top is the SV9600 transceiver. A uh, little reward or award there is, is an Emmy that was given to them. It's officially, I think, a nerd Emmy again. Uh, it was the device that CBS News happened to use to transmit Im images back from Tiananmen Square after the uh, Chinese had taken the satellite down. What this box does it'll, is it will take a video image input, basically a, a TV type video in image input, convert it into a digital file uh, using discrete cosine transform, which today we would call JPEG, and then send it out to another box just like it, uh, which you would make a print from. One of the earliest examples of this is actually uh, this Times Union photo of Discovery taking off. This was in September of, of 1988. So again, they took a, a still image at the site. Uh, the launch was at about 11.30. Uh, the image was sent to one of the local television stations and then given to the Times Union. It ran in the afternoon newspaper. Those of you may remember that the Times Union was the afternoon paper. So now we get on to actual trying to build a digital camera that, that somewhat resembles a camera and might possibly work. 1986, Eastman Kodak Company produced their first imaging sensor called the M1, uh, about a half inch square black and white sensor. Uh, the request came in from a division of the US government, would it be possible to put this into a camera? Uh, Jim McGarvey's team worked on this however other people with. So what we have here is, is an existing camera, the Canon F1 from the time, which was what that particular organization was using, that's been fitted into the camera, also with a tethered device, which acted as a combination of battery and storage device. And that's basically the memory card, if you will. Weighs about 25 pounds. <laughs> and I'm exaggerating, but not by much. Here's Jim holding it. As you see, it could be shoulder-mounted. Uh, <laughs> 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 and it made images about around the quality of this. It's actually, I believe, one of the only surviving images 
of that, and it happens to be of a military installation of the Army in Cronenberg. About the same time, Steve Sassons and, and Bob Hills were working on an actual camera that sort of resembled a camera. Uh, this is called Ecam. Very few people know or have seen of this camera. Uh, it writes compressed images to removable memory. Uh, however, the one thing that came out of this camera, they, they made about six of them, was this guy right here. They patented it. This is the 107 patent. And basically, anybody who is making a digital camera uh, from about this time on would have to pay the company royalties for this particular patent. So when various people say how much money was made on digital photography, you'd probably say not much, but this patent actually did. It was quite profitable for the company. Further down the road into what would become the, uh, the DCS, we have Hawkeye 2 imaging <coughs> accessory, and there's two of them. The, the, the taller one in the back was the, the next camera in the parade, if you would. Uh, this one, again, uses that M1 sensor, uh, but has internal memory to hold four pictures. Four. Uh, obviously, four wasn't going to do much good, so they decided to stay with the tether. Again, these are, these are basically the same idea with, with and without internal memory. Uh, the tether device, uh, at this point, I do not have. I know where there is one. Hopefully, I can talk a particular company across town into giving it to us. Also to note, these were called imaging accessories. They didn't consider them cameras. It was sort of the idea of, of, of film again, if you will. Uh, right before going into production, what we have here is a, a prototype, what would become the Kodak DCS, probably late in 1990. Uh, the little box that it's sitting on is the DSU. They made three of them. We have two here. Uh, very similar to the production camera, just some slight differences. It's using a bigger sensor than we have for this is now the M3 sensor. This is the production version, uh, again, with the tethered unit, which is now cleaned up a little bit. Uh, the sort of reflective gizmo here is a display panel, so you could actually uh, review the image. You could also use this, uh, in some cases, to send the image, image back to the home office, so to speak. So 1991, May 1991, I remember seeing a Kodak reception here shortly around this time. Uh, they were setting up and there was somebody actually using one of these to take portraits of, of the various uh, uh, festival goers, if you would, the, the people who came to the reception. So I'm thinking, sort of scratching my head, it's okay, well, what's the point? It's an expensive way to make a bad picture. <laughs> Here's the sensor. And what, what basically happens, I guess I'm slightly out of order. Uh, this guy right here is the DCS 200, comes out the next year. Uh, all one piece, you do not need to have a tethered uh, storage mechanism. Uh, and it also has, let me just go backwards, a bare filter array, which was patented actually in 1976. This is allowed for color photography. So pretty amazing, you're going from something that was uh, I don't know, rather inconvenient, we'll say, to carry around. There's something that more resembles a handheld camera. <coughs> a couple years later, uh, Eastman Kodak Company partners with the Associated Press, comes up with the uh, NC2000 series. This happens to be a 2000E. These are basically a tuned-up version of the 200. has removable memory, 
uh, and from about this time on, it's the cameras that most photojournalists would be using. Uh, it's interesting how this uh, adaption happened. Uh, normally with a new technology, the pros would be the last people to accept it. They're, they're, they're basically uh, getting paid to get the shot. They want to use what they know how to, what they're familiar with. Uh, in this case, uh, they were pretty, pretty much told this is what you're going to use. So, like it or not, it was here. When we get into the amateur world, the Apple Quick Take is the first color uh, consumer camera. It came out about 1994 <coughs> and was, of course, brought to the world by Cam Borowski. We've got like a whole row full of famous people up here. <laughs> <laughs> this is VGA. Uh, 16-color uh, VGA. It's pretty much represent what you would have seen on your computer screen at the time. The next year, Kodak introduced their own branded version, the DC40. Uh, I used one of these many times. In fact, this is one of my pictures. Try, trying to get a picture with the DC40 in low light was somewhat of a challenge. Uh, also, it won't work when it's cold out. It had to be above, uh, I think, uh, 40 degrees, something like that. 1997, uh, Kodak introduces the DC-210. Uh, real milestone camera here. This sold for about $700. It's the world's first megapixel, megapixel color camera. Removable memory, ran on four batteries. Uh, I was at PMA in Las Vegas uh, with Bob Shambrook. Actually, he was feeding me, I think. Um, we, we tend to travel on very small budgets here at times. Uh, okay, don't touch the mouse. Uh, it, it won the digital camera of the year. Uh, it was the leading selling digital camera for about two years after it was introduced. And basically, it, it's pretty much equal what you would get quality-wise out of a one-time use uh, $20 camera. So from this point on, it's you know, digital photography is with us. Uh, and I use the phrase, you know, how, how to make, how to change it from being an expensive way to make a bad picture to something more towards what everybody has in mind. So this, again, um, one megapixel is what you would need basically to make a three by five snapshot. Uh, and it ran on four, four AA batteries. Well received, well sold, sold pretty big numbers. 1998, Kodak actually partners with Canon. Uh, the earlier cameras that were Nikons were not a partnership. They basically went down to one of the local photo stores. And, uh, and bought them and put their sensors in. In this case, if this is a collaboration, uh, if I could turn the camera around, I wanted to have a picture of the back. Unfortunately, it's in the case, you'll have to go look for yourself. The controls are basically pretty much the same that Canon is still using today. So this happens to be a, a, a two meg camera. It was also available as a six meg. And we have the Kodak Pro 14N. This was the first full-size CMOS sensor camera, introduced in 2002. Uh, parenthetically, I got 2006 on this because this is actually the last camera that was made in Rochester. Uh, this was actually built for the museum. Uh, I had a salesman sample of this camera that was not a real one. It was basically just a mock-up. Uh, I asked uh, Mark Schneider if we could fix it, turn it into a real camera. Uh, he took it back to the shop, and basically they, he said they had all sorts of interesting names for him and me about this project. But they, they basically <laughs> uh, built us one out of uh, basically repair parts. So it was the last handmade camera. 
So that sort of ends it with, with, the, with, the, with the pro DSLR stuff. What evolves next is really kind of interesting. Uh, we have cell phone stuff. Uh, there was a gentleman from Nokia uh, I met uh, at a, an appointment across town, and he was showing this camera right here. This is actually a, a cell phone with a built-in camera. It was the first of the, of the <coughs> camera phones that was sold in the U.S. I luckily talked him out of one. There were earlier ones, but they were not actually integrated. This is actually all built together, which would evolve into something like the uh, this guy right here, the Motorola Pro E815. Um, good phone, bad camera, I guess is the best way. I, I can speak out of, out of personal experience. This was my phone. Uh, I put it on burst mode, and it would sort of maybe make one decent image out of the four, as long as you left it on the screen that size. So these are all pretty small. 2006, what was the Kodak Pro camera folks uh, sort of got, for better or worse, moved into more consumer products. They came out with the Easy Share One, 2005-2006. Originally introduced as a four megapixel, then turned into a six. And what this did is it would actually uh, be able to transmit an image from the camera. So it actually would be the world's first Wi-Fi camera. And at the time when it came out, uh, why would you want to have a Wi-Fi camera? Mm -hmm. uh, Leica decided to get into the digital business also. They used Kodak sensor to produce a 10 megapixel camera. Pretty decent camera in some ways. Uh, kind of expensive. iPhone 19, or 2007. Another milestone piece here. Uh, sort of where we're beginning to get today. Uh, camera wasn't so great, but it did have one, and battery life was pretty short. Uh, but again, it's it sort of set the standard for where we're going to go. In the point-and-shoot world, uh, again, these are all sort of evolving at the same time. The, the, the Canon S95, uh, maybe one of the best little point-and-shoots ever built. Uh, 12 megapixel, I think. And then we get into some of the unusual things. This is a, the Lightfield uh, LFC camera. Interesting concept. Uh, it, it's multiple lenses on, on multiple on one's multiple sensors, I guess, if you would. And it allows you, so they say, to refocus the image. Uh, I've tried it. I'll, I'll take their word for it. I can never get it to work. But uh, interesting idea, and I suspect things like this are going to continue to happen. Uh, Nokia comes out with a pure view to 2012. This is a 41 megapixel smartphone. Uh, good camera, lousy phone. Yeah. Lousy operating system. But it, again, it's possible to do that. Uh, then we get into the, the fun of what else you can do with cameras. We can put them on drones and fly them around. This is the, the beginning of the, uh, the drone era, if you would. And that's an image taken with this. And I, I remember when we did this, I was completely blown away with what you could do with this little toy camera. This was when it was still legal to fly them without having to. Uh, <laughs> and yes, we have Kathy Connor and Bob Shanebrook are, are standing uh, oops, uh, right about there. <laughs> uh, there's been somewhat of a trend to make digital cameras look like old cameras. This is sort of the Fujifilm 
really nice point-and-shoot camera, but it more resembles the sorts of cameras that I grew up with as a kid. These were the, the lens shutter rangefinder type cameras from the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, this has an electronic viewfinder, which is, I, I think the best way to explain it is weird. Uh, it's like having a little tiny television too close to your eye. It does make nice pictures. Uh, the Canon DF, or pardon me, the Nikon DF uh, is uh, it's one of those cameras that looks like something funny happened to an F3. It really is a digital camera, it has knobs on it, uh, 16 megapixel. Uh, a little kooky, but uh, kind of a fun camera. And the OMD, we get into the, the micro third, four thirds, looks somewhat like an OM1. This is a trend. The cameras are, are much smaller, uh, and I suspect we're going to see a bit of that. So, and, and of course, the latest of the latest is, is the current generation of smartphones, uh, now with low light sensors, so they're capable of making just amazing things. So, where, where are we today? I mean, if, if we really get into this, um, this, is, this is something I, I'm sort of still trying to get my hands around it. Whenever anybody asks me, where's photography going, I keep trying to say, well, it's, it's, we're trying to emulate human vision. And we've kind of gotten there in a way. Uh, current generation of cameras have just amazing sensors. Uh, they're able to take pictures with no training, but just uh, these, uh, to make an image like this, uh, years ago would have taken a lot of training, a lot of work. I mean, I've been in photography pretty much my whole life. Uh, I tried to be a sports photographer. I used to try to photograph cars going by in the expressway, which is very hard to do. Um, these cameras allow just about anybody to do this. I mean, this, is, this, this image has a lot of problems when you really get into it. You're basically photographing a black dog on a white background. Practically impossible right off the bat without automatic exposure and, and smart automatic exposure, and also getting it in focus. So, but at least in this particular case, I was really trying to do this. I, I took a bunch of them and got one that was pretty good. This image is, is one that really kind of, I don't know, blows my mind. Uh, sitting on the, on the deck of a riverboat cruise, and a parent goes by, Valley says, look, I just pick up the camera, look, and get it in focus. I mean, it's just, this is not going to happen. Uh, and, uh, and again, trying to think of what you'd have to do to get this image on film in the old days would be, I don't know, almost, you know, you, you'd, again, you'd have to be a professional photographer. And last but not least, we have the, the Clark Griswold house. <laughs> um, I stopped the, stopped the car on the side of the road, stuck the camera out the window, and, and pumped it, just pushed the shutter. In the old days, yeah, I could have made this image. It would have required a tripod and probably about a 15 or so second exposure, or some fairly exotic 3200 speed film, but this was just a matter of just click. I just, I'm just amazed where this is right now, and I really have trouble imagining where it's gonna go. So that kind of rounds it up here as we get into the blank screen. So I'm just, I'm just amazed as to what has happened in the last few years.
It's um, so clarify. Clarify. Okay, what we're what we've really been talking about is a disruptive technology. Uh, the company was in incredibly innovative, and this really goes back to the days of George Eastman and establishing the research labs. Uh, they were doing empirical research, basically for the sake of doing research. Uh, in, in some ways, this is a really unlikely story, uh, but um, basically, they made the first. Uh, they had the first sensors or at least they made the first imaging, true imaging sensors. Uh, they, they brought the first pro cameras and, and, and amateur cameras to market. Uh, and they were very successful in doing this. There's one slight problem. It's called money. These were incredibly expensive to do. The company really was not designed to do this. I mean, if you looked at Kodak Park, it was really designed to make film. Uh, this, this was not film. The money's in the media. So the, the problem is trying to come up with something <coughs> to earn the kind of profits that they're used to earning with film. I, I don't have a good answer on this, but I, I, know, I know that most of the conceptions that are out there are, are not correct. Does, does that sort of get you in the ballpark? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe? There are lots of people here who can answer that question much better than I can. But uh, it, it's, uh, it, it really is a misconception as to what happened. But, uh, in, in reality, the company was designed to make film, not consumer electronics. And, and there's also the difference in the profit margin between film and, and uh, the various other products. Does that sound reasonable? I mean, you, you could point out Kodak had the number one market share in the U.S. in digital cameras in 2003 and 2004. Yes, sir. I, I think I read... Uh, company will be introducing a Kodak branded smartphone. Uh, it's available now in Europe. I've seen one or two. It'll come to the States in about six or eight months. But if they're not making it, it's a branded thing. Bullet's making a company called Bullet. They're <coughs> close making it. You have mentioned Kodak's dependence on the high profits of film. Uh, we should extend that to paper. A large part of the money they made was on the color prints. Kodak bought One way, I, I don't know, but I've heard this explained by people who are much more knowledgeable than I am about this. These are a series of dominoes. And if, if you go back to the original business model established with the Kodak, you know, you basically, and I don't know exactly when Mr. Eastman had that, that light bulb come on. Uh, he wanted to get into the camera business. I mean, at what point did he realize that well, there's more money to be made in selling film and processing than there was in cameras? So like the razor and the razor blade, except this came before that. So that was the business model, incredibly successful. Uh, there's a couple things about film that most people don't realize. Uh, first of all, it's it's the most was the most profitable product made by any Fortune 500 company. Uh, you also have to realize the amount of investment that went into this. When you look at those little boxes of yellow film, you're really looking at literally hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. Film is you know, film is the most complicated consumer product that's ever been manufactured. So you're looking at something that was specifically designed to do that. 
and then something else comes along. And what do you do? So that's absolutely it. That question. And I don't, I don't have a good answer. Um, I don't. I don't really feel comfortable pointing fingers at anybody on this. Uh, and I, I think as time went on with the company, it wasn't that they made bad choices; it that there were just fewer and fewer, if any, good choices to be made. I think it's one way to put it. So I see people nodding their head in the front row. Yes, sir. A couple of pictures towards the end with the drones. It said gimbal mounting mounted. G-I-M-B-A-L, what's, what's that? Okay, uh, when, when, when we look at the, when you look at a, a, a drone camera, there's, there's a couple of ways of doing this. Uh, you can just fasten the camera to the bottom of the, of the helicopter, the quadcopter, if you would. But if you want to actually be able to control what you're taking pictures of, you need to have some way to, to move the camera itself, rather than just moving the entire uh, copter. So the gimbal allows the camera to turn. And these are remote control. It's like some gyroscope. That's a gyroscope. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, with our modern digital workflow, like a Canon, Nikon, DSLR, uh, Adobe Photoshop, mm -hmm. how, how much impact are the Kodak patents in those? Like, like how much of the value of a thousand-hour investment? How much of how much is Kodak? I think I'll defer this to Canon. <laughs> <laughs> Canon is Mr. Patton. Kodak had a very large portfolio of patents that were broadly licensed over the years and actually brought Kodak literally billions of dollars. Um, beyond that, I really can't probably say too much. <laughs> <laughs> we can say that all, what it ended in 2010, is that the, the Well, no, I mean, even as part of the bankruptcy, there was the sales of these patents and um, these other... These are not easy questions. Uh, other... <laughs> I mean, it's publicly, it's public information that other companies own the patents now. Yeah. So and also it's public information that many were licensed. Yeah, there was a combination of uh, patents that were sold and some that were licensed. And, uh, yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question. It sounded fascinating. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Well, uh, again, uh, thank you very much for coming. I, I guess uh, if you want to talk to some of the gentlemen, I'm, I'm inviting them to come and join us in the cafe for a while. You know, specific questions for either Jim McGarvey or, or Ken or Steve or Martin or, or Bob Chamberlain. So, again, thank you very much for coming. It's